Okay, heads up, my creative brothers and sisters. Not Real Art now has an exclusive membership program designed just for you. If you're an artist or an art lover and you appreciate what we do here at Not Real Art and you'd like to join the family and help support the cause and celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it, please consider becoming a member today. Your membership will help support our work, such as funding our artist grant and production costs for all the programs and content we produce. Your membership will also help us stay independent and commercial free. And when you do become a member, you'll get valuable benefits and perks we think you'll find very cool. And becoming a member is super affordable. Just $5 a month for artists and $10 a month for art lovers. So to become a member of the Not Real Art family, simply go to notrealart.com, click on membership to sign up, and help us celebrate and elevate the creative culture we love and the artists who make it. Thank you. Warning. The Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the esteemed Man One, is on assignment today, so it's just me here in the booth. But I want to thank you all for supporting us and continuing to listen, and uh, we, you know, we, we do this for you. And uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about our show today because the next couple of episodes over the next few weeks are going to be a little bit unique because on October 24th, we're the media sponsor for a show that uh, Crew West Studio, uh, our mothership, is producing called Indivisible. And it's a political art exhibition that, uh, like I said, we're producing. And it's a great show. It's going to be a great show. So definitely want you guys to check it out on October 24th when it goes live just by going to indivisible2020.org. But the whole reason we're doing Indivisible, which again is a political art exhibition, was to address you know stuff going on in our country right now. You know, obviously, it's been a hell of a year, and certainly after the murder of George Floyd, we, I think, like everybody, were thinking about, well, what could we do to help, you know, make a difference or help, you know, address the conversation, add some value to the conversation, and, you know, be a positive voice in, you know, what has been a pretty challenging year. And, you know, it's only going to get more challenging over the next few weeks as we come into the election and depending on how things play out over the next few weeks and months as we sort out the votes and see who the legitimate winner of the presidential election is going to be. So anyway, I mean, we decided many weeks ago that we thought that, you know, given how divided the country is and divided people seem to be, that it would be 
interesting to curate a show that would address some of these issues. And so we asked our friend Karen Frito, who is a political artist who's done some incredible work. I mean, she's got death threats for her work. I mean, she is on the front lines, no doubt. But Karen also happens to be a Not Real Art grant winner from 2019. And so, you know, we think of Karen as being kind of in the Not Real Art family as one of our grant recipients. And uh, which, by the way, if you're an artist listening and you haven't applied for a 2021 grant, be sure to do that. But Karen and I started talking about, you know, what we could do. She came up with this amazing idea for a show called Indivisible, sort of exploring what it means to be indivisible today. Many of us grew up uh, stating the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, saying that we're, you know, indivisible, one nation under God. Uh, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Turns out that's pretty aspirational. We've always been very divided and we're still divided today more than ever, it seems. And so we thought it'd be great to, you know, have a show that we could have some great artists come together and explore what uh, indivisible means these days, what it means to be divided, what it means to be united uh, in this country uh, today and even around the world. And so uh, Karen has been a great partner and has been curating this show. She's been working with us and our partners at Sugar Press Art to curate, uh, I think, what is going to be uh, an incredible uh, show. We've got some incredible artists, uh, Andrea Rejo, Linda Leike, Gabe Galt, Edward Culver, John Mark Edwards, Kaylin Campbell. Kay Brown, Man One, Leroy Johnson, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Miles Regis, Anna Stump, Linda Vallejo, and Meredith Vandenberg, who are all going to be in the show. And so, so, so Karen's been doing this great job of curating. We've got some amazing artists. And, you know, Sugar Press has been an incredible partner. They're going to be creating prints around much of the art in the show that you can buy. And... As part of the show, we thought it would be great to have the guests, you know, on the podcast or the artists on the podcast as guests uh, to talk about their work, talk about the show, just talk about the state of our union. And so the next few episodes are going to be uh, episodes of the podcast are going to be conversations with these artists. And, you know, all these conversations were done remotely uh, over the interweb. And so it was, you know, technically challenging at times, but we were able to pull it off. And so we've got, you know, Leroy Johnson coming up. We've got Linda Vallejo, Man One. We've got Mary Sherwood Brock, Joshua Waddles, Karen Ferrito, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Kaylin Campbell, all who are going to be guests on the show. And so we're thrilled about that and uh, want to continue to promote this show. The show is going to hang uh, virtually until the inauguration. And, you know, so you'll be able to go to indivisible2020.org to access the show and look at the art and experience the art. But we're going to have a Zoom reception opening on October 24th. So if you're hearing this before October 24th, please come to our opening Zoom reception that evening where you can hear from our artists and ask questions, so on and so forth. 
But like I said, the art itself, the exhibition itself will hang until the inauguration. And oh, by the way, we want to make the Indivisible show an annual event because this is a ongoing conversation. Certainly building unity in this country is a long-term project that, you know, we're fully aware that one show is not going to, you know, solve our problems. We need to keep having these conversations. We need to keep talking, speaking truth to power and challenging people to think more broadly and more deeply uh, about these issues. And so Indivisible is a show that we hope to do year over year. This is our first year, Indivisible 2020. So definitely go to indivisible2020.org and check out the show. I want to you know, shout out to Karen Ferrito, who has been curating the show. She's been doing a powerful, amazing, incredible job. Uh, I want to shout out to Sugar Press Art, one of our key sponsors in putting the show together. Many of their artists are featured in the show. And then, of course, uh, Not Real Art is the media sponsor. So you'll be hearing from us about uh, the show moving forward. So definitely check it out. In today's episode... We have political artist Leroy Johnson in conversation with myself and Karen Frito. And if you've never heard of Leroy, boy, you're in for a treat. I mean, he's a legend. He's a Pew fellow out of Philly. And I mean, I think he's, what, 83 now, 82 now. He was born in 1937. This guy's seen it all, heard it all, done it all. He was a Black Panther in the sixties, you know, he, I just love this guy. I mean, if there was ever a guy that, or somebody that had every right to be pissed off and angry and have a lack of hope, it might be a Leroy and don't get me wrong. He's absolutely pissed off and angry, <laughs> but he still has hope and he's still a light, a positive light. And boy, is he funny and full of charm and energy and charisma and personality and, you know, Karen and I had a great conversation with him. He's such a character and his art's amazing. I mean, you definitely got to check him out at LeroyJohnsonArt.com, LeroyJohnsonArt.com. So definitely enjoy uh, today's episode with uh, Karen Ferrito and I talking to political artist Leroy Johnson from Philly. Leroy Johnson, thank you for joining us here at the Not Real Art Podcast. I'm welcome to be happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. The honor is all ours. You know, what What brings us here, our, our mutual friend Karen Ferrito brings us here together, the three of us. Karen is curating our political art show opening later this month called Indivisible. And you are one of the artists in the show. And we're so grateful and honored to have you in the show. What does this idea of indivisible mean to you? There's something I'm going to send Karen soon. I've been writing. I have a thing I'm writing. But, you know, first of all, I'll start with this. We're all in this together, you know, which really it, it suddenly became apparent that in some ways we weren't all in this together. At the same time, the whole idea of America is indivisible. 
with liberty and justice for all. That's where we've quite come into the problem. But I think that, as I was, I talked earlier, for me, the future, as artists, we have to really question what our role is and how do we play in this society, especially when you, you think about in terms of being indivisible, just how much of us, how much are we part of this and, and how are we part of this? I went just read through a lot, a lot of Joseph Bowie's stuff and uh, Theaster Gates and people like the artists who are really involved in what, what, what Bowie's called social sculpture. And I, and I think that uh, one of the points about indivisibility is that we have lacked a voice. I'm looking at another old book of mine from the writers of the 1920s and 30s, when the labor movement and so many other things that we're, we're losing now were born, that we're trying to get. And artists, were, artists and writers were a big part of that. And I think that just like what the president has done with this exclusion of being America first and America only and things like that, that in some ways artists have been deceived into believing that we are individuals in this capitalist system. We gotta understand this capitalist system done plays us when we think about where we're individuals. Because corporations are people and money is speech. And so that means that we as individual artists are nothing. You know, where's our impact? Well, I love what you were saying about we're all in this together, right? And we're not just all in this together as fellow Americans, but as fellow Earthlings right. <laughs> on this planet, right? That's my favorite. You know, Earthlings, I include the bugs, even these stink bugs out here that I have <laughs> war on. I'm not letting them in here. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but one of the books I'm reading right now is a. Uh, are humans, something like paraphrasing the text, are humans smart enough to analyze the intelligence of animals? You know, which is very strange. We gauge animals based on ourselves. It has nothing to do with animal intelligence. Everything here is intelligent, and, it, and we are all in this together, and that's what moves me to the environment. And we've, had to, we've got to stop this idea that we can just destroy anything that, not that we don't like, but corporate America doesn't like. Corporate America wants that Monsanto. We want bees. Corporate America doesn't want that. You know, we, we want clean air. Corporate America doesn't want that. You know, a lot of the, the art that came about after the Second World War was just to get people's minds off the fact that artists prior to that had been battling for equal rights and justice and whatnot. Now, art was related to the labor movement and the people's rights and things like that. Then after the Second World War, when we decided we were the exceptional country, abstract expressionism came along, which means that alleviated you from talking about poverty or real, real issues or whatever, it made you suddenly acceptable to corporate America. Oh, we can put that in our hotels. Trump can put all that crap up there. You know, good, put some gold around it. It's even better. <laughs> Don't want to hear anything about poverty or homelessness or any of those things. Which that's the only the only voice that we have left now because of the Supreme Court is art. Art's one of the few places where people, minorities, people who are disempowered, whatever, can have a chance to have 
to say something without being, well, we sometimes we are still beaten into the ground. Poets and whatever who speak out can suffer a real price for being political. So I thought that in some ways we have to think politically, but we cannot be, we can't let our art be just based on politicization, because otherwise the message is lost over time. And we have to figure out ways of timelessness and whatnot. And so once again, a show like this should also try to bring about the fact, the permanence of us really being all in this together, you know, and not as, as broken up separate little pieces of this system that people like Trump and his ilk can always exploit and use and beat down. And there's nobody to say anything. No, but you may get shot for saying no, you don't even have to you don't have to say anything if you're black. You just get shot. Take care mm-hmm. of that. There needs me more voices. I don't I'm not really happy about the way a lot of uh, artists what what's expressed right now seems like the uh, musicians even they haven't really aren't as on the front as like say like somebody like James Brown was you know you don't have that kind and we I feel like we need this across the arts I think this time can be exciting because this is a time of change I just feel like it's, it'd be nice to be like it was in the 20s and 30s, you know, with lots of pamphlets and posters and, and media. And I think, I guess apparently that's going to be changed to this sort of format, which first of all, honest to God, is hard. Social distancing. Just had lunch with friends. We're, we're busy. You think we didn't know each other. You know what I mean? Whoa, get back. <laughs> get too close. <laughs> we're going to eat together. You sit over there. <laughs> Those old movies, you know, that the king and whatnot, this long table, you know. And so this is the way we're going to contact and meet with each other, apparently. Uh, I'm trying to think. If someone's asking me about what, what the, the people, this, this residency I'm doing now as well, how are you going to sell the work? You know, people want to see it. They want to be in touch with the artists and whatever. And, and how is that going to work? And are we going to be able to sell work? Now, for me, I believe that Everything you have right now, everything you're using right now will be obsolete. And art's going to be only the only concrete, permanent thing that you're going to have in your, in your home or in your environment. It's not going to break in a year or they're going to tell you there's no new parts for it or we don't, we discontinued that. <laughs> you might as well throw that computer out. Oh, that phone? <laughs> what a joke. Your refrigerator? No, no, it has a little thing in it too. That dies. Your stove? Yes, that dies too. We fix it so everything dies. Oh, by the way, you get an art commission. You have to sign a thing. This is going to last for a hundred years after you're dead. You know, it's just color fast. What kind of paper is this on? What canvas did you use? So things are really skewed about value and whatnot, and we have lost the idea that culture cultural products are valuable and need to be preserved. I mean, I, I, I still have books and read books, you know? <laughs> and, and at one time people said, oh no, we're gonna have tapes. That, that's, that sounds antique already, <laughs> tapes, you know? <laughs> what? <laughs> and soon it'll be the same thing for thumb drives. These thieves, the cloud, 
Those crooks <laughs> made me realize, what do we own? We don't own anything. This phone, I'm renting it. I am paying for these suckers to steal all my information in a capitalist society where they tell me I can't get any money back from it. You know, I talked to somebody about, in passing, I said something, I wanted to get a, a bidet for my toilet, you know? I get commercials, hey, look at this toilet here, this toilet. Oh, by the way, you have leaky bowels? Do you, oh my God. your rectum swollen? Did you, what? <laughs> I took those conclusions, you know? So, I feel like, I feel like there's, a, there's a need, I recognize there's all kinds of art and all kinds of art markets and what we have to deal with. But I think that we have to be concerned as artists about the intersectionality of it, or are we just gonna be set aside as losers and suckers who made the wrong choice in what we would do with our lives as opposed to being some corporate lackey, you know, <laughs> that supports this, this lame system that is has all these these lies in it about freedom and justice and empowerment and equality and a desire for all of us to be able to participate in the great American dream and how hip and cool. Look how shoddy and fragile that was. I was brought up to believe that founding fathers set up an institution, can't be broken, you have nothing to worry about. I was telling them, even during the 60s, 50s and 60s, when I was really crazy and whatnot, Still someplace deep down, I believe that America could be America. And that, that's been shattered. That's been shattered, you know? I can't imagine how children feel. I grew up during the Second World War and the atomic bomb and all that fear and whatnot. I can't imagine, I know how that shaped my life and my perception. I can only imagine what's happening to young people right now, especially with the lame education they're getting where they're not encouraged to read, they don't know history, you know, and don't know anything and whatnot. And really, I feel like artists, once again, nobody else is doing it. Betsy DeVos is not doing it. She's not educating <laughs> your children. <laughs> she may be indoctrinating someone, she's not educating anybody. I feel like artists, we need to have a voice where we start informing that that can be dangerous in the kind of government we presently have. We can only hope that changes where we do continue to have freedom of the press because we don't anymore. And when this clown can say that the press is all fake, it's all lies and things like that and undermine people's confidence in the thing and whatever. Well, you know, and it, you know that the people will easily compromise artists and say they're propagandists too. So we have to be very conscious about how we work things. For some reason, Americans do not like so-called left-wing politics, which is freedom, justice, and equality. Leftists are socialists. You want what? Medicare for? That's socialism. You know, we could all have about $1,600 at least every month from now on through as long as the United States lasts. And it wouldn't change their income at all. These cats would still be balling the jack and making money. And you got these millionaires telling you that $7 is like, you know, adequate. 
when there's nothing, they cost that out because there may be children who will watch this one day. I want to get into how much various things in our society costs, you know, <laughs> whether it's medical or not, you know. But this is a real, there's a real issue going on here. Artists need to be involved with the repurposing, restoration, recycling, and the environment. That should be the driving force for our cultural output. Number one, because it serves the people. And number two, because I happen to think that there should be some morality in your art. Otherwise, you just go ahead and, and paint and draw pictures of that President Trump and he's rewarded. You know, he'll put him in Mar-a-Lago someplace and you can be considered cool too or something. Well, Leroy Johnson, I am so grateful to Karen for introducing me to your work. I admittedly was not aware uh, of your practice and of your work until Karen uh, brought us together as she's curating this important show, Indivisible. Karen, how did you come to meet Leroy? We were in a show together. It was probably, I think, I was in my 20s. <laughs> it was so, <laughs> over 20 years ago, believe it or not. Yeah. Easily 20. I've been out of the Clay Studio for 20 years, at least. You know, I've been in the new building 20 years, so it had to be. Now, I guess you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I, said, I probably still had a little bit more hair and a little bit more whatever was left. Yeah, so we were on a show together called Pretty City. And I had um, some prints and he had some sculpture. And I think I asked him to like take a photo of me and my mom and my brothers. And he's like, are you the artist? And he's like, <laughs> we just started talking about our pieces and we like hung out like every day after that. Like, we we kept Appa Valley in business. <laughs> As and I see one of you still is because uh, yes, it's a little <laughs> early for me right now. But. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm I'm residency. You know what I mean? Yeah. How is your residency going? I have an incredible studio. So anyway, here's some of the stuff I've been doing. I tried I don't want to be too representational. I like to be a bit more abstract with these countries to show my poetic side when I'm in there, as opposed to the gritty stuff of the city and the issues I'm going to be involved in once I get back to Philadelphia. But, you know, but it's interesting. So where exactly, Leroy, are you right now? Where, where, where in the countryside are you? This is uh, Western Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in the olden days, we'd go to breakfast at the White Dog or Dog Cafe in Berkeley Springs, Pennsylvania. And that's just on the other side, that's Western Virginia. And so I'm right here deep in the wide open country where people ride down the road with an American flag on one side of the truck and with the stars and bars on the other one, right? <laughs> So it's nice and isolated. There's a mixed community mm -hmm. of civilized people, some old hippies, and then the rest. <laughs> so I've, I've met some really nice people, some very decent people, you know? Yeah. But for the most part, a lot of them are really, like you ride around here, it's Trump. 
Trump's yeah. you know, <laughs> they're down with my boy. Now, even though they've had to close down their two, they've just this past week had to close down their two elementary schools because of COVID, you know, because of course before they believed, oh no, that's Trump's, the kids don't get it. So. Right. I'm only here for two weeks, which is long for me. <laughs> but being here, first of all, the problem is I'm treated like royalty, you know? The food is too rich. It's too abundant. I'm not accustomed to eating three times a day. <laughs> people call, bothering me about eating, you know? I'll have a hard-boiled egg and some wine while I'm at the studio while I'm working and whatnot. When I get home, I'll try, ideally, I'll put a piece of meat in the pan, stand there and eat that, and then that's <laughs> Now I'm eating with knives and forks and spoons. There's dessert and the, oh, the bread. I'd, you got a wine glass. Off of bread, you know what I mean? Oh, I'll have some bread. Is that cheese over there? Yes, I'll take some of that too. Yes. You know, and they have homemade cookies. I got all this fresh natural foods and this and, and venison. I'm scarfing my ass off. I mean, I'm eating. <laughs> I'm determined to go back to a smoothie diet when I get back to Philly. <laughs> They're really slowing you down. Your creative output is uh, is way down. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I tell them. You're interfering with them. I'm busy eating and doing this and that. And people are busy. I yeah. can just crank it out, you know? <laughs> All at once. Yeah. That's my point. <laughs> Karen, I, I, I want to ask you a question. As curator of the Indivisible show, what excited you most about having Leroy in the show? Like when you when we started talking about doing the show, Leroy was one of the first artists that I remember you mentioning as wanting to have in the show. What what about Leroy and his work and his legacy was was so uh, meaningful to you that you wanted to include him in the show well i've known leroy for over 20 years and um he's probably one of the hardest working artists i know and really amazing writer very knowledgeable about everything in life and well read and just has worked his butt off you know <laughs> for <laughs> his whole life and i i'm constantly amazed and inspired by everything he does at 83 and he's always been like this, you know, as long as I've known him. It's just, you he just know. had more hair. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't so white. I don't think. Yeah. And I, I think he has a, a lot to offer the world right now, as far as someone who's been involved in civil rights movement and is a outspoken very outspoken political artist and has actually been able to not only survive as a political artist, but to thrive and not to give in to capitalism and not to sell out, if you want to call it that, but um, someone who's always maintained this honestly and honesty and integrity about him. And I think the younger generation, especially of artists that are doing this kind of work, have they could learn a lot from him. So I wanted to give him a voice. It's any opportunity I have to tell people about Leroy and how awesome he is and how much he knows and 
but to get him, I can tell people he's awesome, but to hear him talk, like, I'm sure you'll agree. Like he's just pretty awesome guy. (laughs) Leroy, where does your, where does your spirit and your energy come from? Is it your mom, your dad, both? What were your parents like? But they didn't believe that, you know, and being, being an artist. Oh, really? They had enough sense to know that. Good <laughs> <laughs> choice. But I come from a, as weird and strange as I was as a child, I came from a very supportive family. Now, they didn't like the idea of my art, or they didn't like the, my what happened in the 60s when, as I became an activist and all that, you know. But I still always had their support. And I come from a stubborn family and a very strong family, just getting out of their clutches. But I was lucky that there were always books in my house. And the church, I was Episcopalian. And there was a huge library when I was a church, plus plenty of activities and things like that. And I grew up in an, an area what not was ex- extraordinarily diversified. There hasn't been very many areas like that since that time. And also I encountered people who were mentors to me who were significant artists in their times who taught in the universities and things in Philadelphia and whatever. And I just, some, I was just very fortunate when it comes to that. Now, so say when I was a child, when I was about seven, eight, nine years old, I read Richard Wright's his Native Son. And I asked my mother who wrote this book, and she said, a colored man. And I heard a voice saying, you're going to be an artist. Being a child and being brought up, you know, Christian and all that. You can't argue with God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and so sort of even, I just accept, I accepted that as, and, and so always in the back of my mind, know what I was doing was that I could always draw and I could always read. You know, those are, they're still my two passions right now. I have a stack of books in here that uh, I'm taking home and uh, books I bought with me and whatever. But, and a lot of my art was shaped through reading some great writers like Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright and Langston Hughes and whatnot. And being a child of the 40s, when I was born, there was still there's a depression. Some people call it the recession of 1937. That's when I was born. I'm part of the lucky generation, you know, the lucky generation. You check back, you'll see the lucky generation. Just, just young enough to escape that war, just at the point where there were so many men lost in the, in the war and whatever, the job opportunities were really open. I could have, I've had any number of jobs and occup- you know what I mean? It was much more fluid. And the economy was such that they weren't raking you across the coals like they are now. You could, aff- you could afford to live. And if you had a, a, a job, even a, what we could consider a lame job now, you could have a house, you know, <laughs> and, and aspire to a car. And if you, you know, and maybe even have, if you're white, have a house at the shore as well. And still just be a working class guy. So I so things were a little different then, whatever. But I uh, naturally Ben Sean and, and Upton Sinclair, Sinclair, you know, just just that whole Milu then gave me the idea that art was about 
being aware of society and being aware of people and being involved in that. To me, that's what I thought art was. I, I never thought of it as just being able to do a pretty picture. I mean, I, I really, with my canvases and whatnot, what I work at is making sure that I could follow Picasso's thing. I make a pretty picture, I destroy that sucker. I just keep going until it gets to be morphed into something more than just a pretty thing. I want it to have more to say. It's just like when you have a really great poem, you know? I mean, I like, uh, I, I, when I did that, I did residency at the Barnes Foundation uh, last year. And I used uh, T.S. Eliot's The Second Coming, Turning, Turn, the Winding Cloud of Falconer, Cannot See the Falconer, Center of Will, Cannot Hold, Things Fall Apart. That, Frederick Douglass and things like that. So lots of times, lots of times my work is inspired by things I'm reading or things that are going on. I'm big on history. We do not, like I said, read the stuff of the 30s right now you'll know exactly what we're battling against and what we have lost and what people fought for. Back in their 20s and 30s, little white boys were working in the mines, all right? Seven, eight, nine, ten years old. In the mines, people fought and died to get that change, you know? I mean, there's so much that went on. And so we're at the same point now, and artists really were involved in that. I feel like somehow, they, they, the academies and things that push artists into this ivory tower situation where you're just making really like cool on time stuff, you know, but it's not really, it doesn't have anything to do about what's at the heart of why we call ourselves human, you know, <laughs> or things like that. And I think that's critical. The young people are being moved more towards barbarism my definition being that, well, you're not really literate. You're a cultural vulture. You're not producing anything of your own. You're still acquiring and taking over, appropriating other things, not really looking into yourself, into your time and your place and trying to express that as any good. I mean, Zen poets, I mean, that's what haiku is all about, you know? That, really trying to get to the essence of something. And I feel like a lot of art right now is rather superficial and lacks historical memory, you know, which once again is why we've gotten here. Picture is worth more than a thousand words and whatnot. And we've, you've been trained to be visual, but we're visual in a, in a flat, flat world, you know? And that, that implies we're doing that visually and our eyes are directly connected to our brain and therefore our mind. And I feel like we're not people, you know, we're not encouraged to look as deeply into things. Otherwise, how could you be conned by this fat sucker with a red necktie telling you that he was so wonderful and great and convinced so many? When I was little, I used to always wonder, well, how could Hitler do that? You know, how did they let that go on? You know, now, of course, for my age, a lot of my friends and people I really know are people who came through. I mean, the, the sponsor of this is originally Lithuanian, and she came through the Second World War and the things that happened to her and just getting to this country and the different places she lived and whatever. 
So we, at a certain age, we have a different consciousness and it hasn't been passed down. You don't have any grandparents telling you stories about when they were little. You know, you don't have anybody, no uncle telling you what it was like to be in the war. And so I feel like, once again, it feels like artists, writers, novels, or whatever. I, I always felt like that was our job, reason, reason for being, you know. I mean, I, I feel like that the cave painters were trying to convey a message each other. I happen to, first of all, I happen to believe most of the cave drawings were probably de- done by women and children. If your butt is out there hunting and whatnot, you're not looking at what charcoal can do. You're not thinking, oh, let me rub this. Oh, I can make a paint. Kids are screwing around with that. They're probably the ones who came up with fire, screwing around with some, something that everybody else was afraid of, you know? Yeah. You know? Men aren't going to be the guys who come up with pottery to preserve food or to save the seeds. And they're not the ones going to figure out plants. I'm reading this thing about this. even animals relate more to females than they do to men. Even our voices and whatnot convey a different message. At least the wild animals, you know, that we're going to kill them. You know? <laughs> so there's a whole, whole thing about how things evolve and whatnot, that we have this whole idea that uh, it happened through some great hierarchy of men and power. Oh, they must have been creating a ritual, whatever. No, if you're a hunter, first of all, you spend all of the summer out in the field. The animals don't hang around you to kill them. You have to, they leave, you have to go travel. It takes weeks and months and whatnot. And you can't hunt and eat the food yourself. You have to hunt it and figure out ways to get it back to your, your family, your children, or your tribe. So that sets a different kind of feeling. The people who are staying stable are the ones who are come up with drawing in caves. What, what heck are you doing in a cave? There's no, no antelope out in the cave. You better get your butt out there. <laughs> so it's got to me, it's just got to be a, a lot of a different things that we need to think about in town our culture evolved, who conveys it, and how we need to look at it. We're, we're not entertainers. I personally think that entertainers entertain because they have some sort of really psychic need to be accepted and whatever, you know? Me, I'll just be, be, be an old belligerent old man and whatnot. I don't care whether you like me or not. You know, I'm not gonna get up there and dance for you, sing for you, you know, any of that stuff. I mean, that's different. So a lot of art sometimes is entertainment, and it's, and it's always going to be appropriated for. I mean, look, just like they they got rid of uh, Uncle Ben, they call it Ben's rice, you know, and they use Andre Two Thousand to sell cars, you know, and they they use they use Martin Luther King to sell chicken. And shit stuff, and they use Picasso in all kinds of ways. And now, even what I like—it's funny. One artist who has crossed over to the youth and the black youth and Puerto Rican youth in particular, Basquiat. Basquiat. You do that crown. Everybody knows that crown. I got lots of young people 
in, in touch with me right now who can't wait to look at this and things like that and waiting for me to get back to Philadelphia just to talk to me is for, for a lot of young people really concerned about what they're doing with their lives and when it comes to art they want to be artists and they don't know what that means or where that's going or whatever so and they like talking to an old head so <laughs> and I, so many people helped me out when I was young and really didn't know and they were, were, were really that I I have a commitment to that, that I will one thing I'll try to tell you the truth and be real with you and give you the best guidance I can on and, and, and question you about do you really want to do this really want a job and get married and have a nice house you know and do all that is that the way to get it because art can Pursuing art in the United States of America can be very discouraging. Those of my friends are always telling me, you need to go to Europe or you'll be respected. If you went over there and every time I did, it's all great because I'm African-American. I'm not thrilled about Europe. Oh, you're colonizers? Oh, I should go over to look at you. <laughs> it gets me bothered going to the museums in New York. Look at all this stolen stuff. <laughs> well that that's that's a that's an interesting point on a lot of levels you know it, it's been fascinating to hear so many people particularly uh liberals uh these days talking about you know leaving the country you know they say well if trump gets elected i'm gonna i'm gonna move to canada i'm gonna move it's, it's interesting because it's like wait this is your country too you know like so were you gonna cut and run i don't i don't it, i'm having a hard time reconciling that now as much i went after trump was elected i spent a little time in montreal and that's what helped me to stop eating so much in the philadelphia philadelphians eat one ready terminal sandwich could feed about four or five Montreal Canadians, believe me. <laughs> Them little sandwiches I got over there, they'd have a little piece of meat in it and some butter. <laughs> Boy, this is cause a fight in Reading Terminal. <laughs> I spent time there and whatnot, but that's I'm a Philadelphian. I'm a Philadelphian. I drink water. Them losers, the Eagles, they're still my team. <laughs> Liars, they're racist, they're my team. I'm sorry, Ben, they're my team. I'm a Philadelphian, so I'm down with that, you know. And I, and I was thinking about that this morning while I was meditating. I said, well, you know, old as I am, I'm not leaving this country. No, this is mine. I'm here, and I will dig in and fight if I have to. I don't know, I'm kind of old now. I can't do much fighting, but... Unfortunately, as you know, God created all men equal, thanks to Smith and Wesson. <laughs> and I, of course, I don't advocate that because I know I know from from my own personal experience that you could throw over the worst dictator in the world, and then appoint your friend or yourself, or a year or two from now, boy. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be combined to be. No, I'm the worst dictator in the whole world. So I, I, I do believe that power corrupts and power, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So I don't, I, human, humankind and government is always going to be an issue. And what I like about 
this thing is that as as Abraham Lincoln said, we're going, to, we're going to try to form a more perfect union. If this isn't a done deal and it's not perfect, and the people in the damn sure aren't perfect, a whole bunch of were a bunch of religious maniacs that were kicked out of Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, but that's the human condition. What I say, you you read and, and it's just look. We are Americans. That's what people say. I had a discussion. There's an Uber driver who's Russian. He said he was an American. And he couldn't understand why we would call ourselves African Americans. Now I was trying to explain that's because we've never been called Americans. You know, <laughs> that's, that's our whole battle. No, we're Americans and we're human. You know, right. we have the Supreme Court issues going on now, starry sizes and whatnot. You know, they told me, oh, that Trump, he's destroyed all the American institutions. He didn't get rid of institutional racism. <laughs> he still got that preserved. <laughs> worry about that. It's alive and well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, I feel like artists need to be screaming about that or at working on that. And not as a political way, but by working with people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, I, I don't want to just be priests, you know, or anything like that. But I mean, but the idea that you're, you're, you're community minded, Artists moving to always have to move initially in the poor neighborhoods. Well, you're you're like the missionaries or the, the other colonizers. If you don't get involved in that community and at least contribute something to it, I would say at least work with the children or do something like that. You know, because otherwise, then yes, you have good intentions, but there because that now right now in my neighborhood now we got smoothie shops opening up and clothing shops. And there's white girls jogging around all the time. And then <laughs> them little doggy poop bags laying all over, you know? But some people don't pick up their dog shit. You can tell when it's getting gentrified when you see the least of them little green. I don't know what they do in California. People have great joy in picking that stuff up you know, in a bag. <laughs> but the white girls jogging in yoga pants is the best symbol or the best sign yeah, of gentrification you know, happening. You know, you know, this is it. This, they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> it's over, people. Pack, start packing now. <laughs> Leroy Johnson, as an activist artist, your life, your whole life, especially in the '60s, as I recall, uh, if I read correctly, you were also involved with the Black Panthers as yeah. well in the '60s. You know, as an activist yourself, your whole life, in what I do know of that era, you know, artists were very much involved yeah. in that uh, writing songs, protests, right. you know, yeah. all these things. And yet today it feels like there's an apathy or there's there's something going on. Um, we're not seeing that level of activism maybe. I, mean, I could be wrong, but what do you, what say you about activism today versus activism back in the day vis-a-vis uh, -vis artists? Well, we were busy arguing in olden days about the bourgeois mentality. In reality, a lot of people, artists, inspired to be middle class. They want a house, family, and all the stuff. All the new computers, all the best cameras, all the new, which requires a deal of either you're going to get a job teaching or something else and make this end in your side hustle, your side thing. Because 
be living, trying to live that little pure life. I don't, I tell, I recommend, I don't recommend it to anybody. The only reason it happened to me is because I didn't, didn't go to art school per se to get a degree and whatnot, you know? In fact, all the people who are mentoring me, that's the one thing they didn't want me to do. They felt I was far too original person to be subjected to that sterilization that I feel takes place in school. I, I talked, I talked to one of the, one of the art institutions and filled t several of them. And they were always talking about how they're really moving towards diversity. No, diversity isn't because you have an Asian and a black and a Haitian and a girl and a trans and a gay and this and that. And you teach them all the same kind of art technique. That's not diversity. You know, you're not allowing them to have, give voice. And so right now, that's part of the problem that, you know, first of all, we should respect and enjoy our diversity and preserve our unique eating customs and other little things what, and be willing to share them without fear or hostility. That's what it really should be going on. We still think of ourselves too much as individuals. Oh, I'm an artist. I'm out here fighting against the world. No, you're not. You need a crew. Nowadays, boy, you got to belong to a gang. You, you know, if you want to do something, be anything. I think that's one of the things that's been lost is that we, we're still going along with that myth that we're, you're the lonesome artist out there in the world. And I was involved not only with, with uh, the Panthers, but with uh, Move. I knew John Africa. You know, I knew, I knew all the Move members. I knew... There's other, the Young Grace Society, that was Herman Rice, that was the Mantua Mafia. You know, they did a whole lot to change things in those days. And uh, Mantua Community Planners, and the people who marched around Gerard College and things like that. And a lot of them were artists. They were the ones in, involved in this new, new movement. Me, myself, I was from the older generation that when it was really difficult for artists of color to be shown in Philadelphia, period. We had to agitate and fight battle for that. So there was a lot more involvement in the real world. Now, a lot of people, I always feel like a lot of people who became artists is because their brother was a doctor or their sister was a lawyer or whatnot, and you were a hot smoking <laughs> or pottery or art or something like that, you know? <laughs> And really wasn't a commitment in any way, but didn't have any social foundation, you know, civic, civic foundation. And it was just, a, it's a good thing to do. Being a lot of people like saying they're artists and walking around and being cool and stuff like that. But what they're doing is, is you're trying to satisfy a public. And for me, being something a little crazy, I don't think that you, your drive should not be to satisfy a public. Remember, art, that's how art started, with us busy people painting for the church, you know, or for the Medici. Oh, I'm going to make you look just like Jesus. I'm going to use your wife. She's going to be the Virgin Mary. It's going to be in this great chapel. And, oh, great. Here's some doubloons or whatever that thing. You know, Caravaggio is my hero. He's running around. Oh, yeah. Doing the paintings. I liked him because he had a sword. And he wasn't supposed to. That's my man. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't even supposed to have a sword. 
And he used class. it too. Yeah, that's, that's the whole class issue. It's like people run around talking, oh, these black guys in Philly are shooting everybody. White guys are running around shooting everybody too. Criminals are all, there's no good criminals. That's only in the movies where this criminal has a heart of gold. You know what I mean? You know, <laughs> you're a killer. All right? I don't care if you're Clint Eastwood or not. <laughs> you're a killer. And right now, look at this art. Artists, the reason I'm mixed media artists, we're being exploited with how much it costs for your, your equipment, your tools, your pigments, and things like that. And that's where the industry is or whatever. And we're just like consumers of uh, their, their products. It's no longer a fact that you're grinding your own pigments or mixing your own clay, you know, or processing your own glazes or whatever. It's all uh, monetized in other ways where you're, you're just having part of the thing, and it's, which renders then renders your work more like that. Then you can equate, like say, equate it with uh, plastic cups or something like that. We're living in a place where we're we're isolated. Like I said, your TV set, your computer, your cameras, all that crap's gonna be obsolete in a year or two. And you will have nothing in your environment except a bunch of obsolete stuff. So I feel like there's going to be a need for art. And it can't be just be des decoration. I don't know how art, I don't know. The reason I'm trying to work like I'm doing is I know that we're accustomed to a moving screen. I mean, to moving images on a flat screen. And also, that what we're doing right now with this, with this screen, I'm still looking at one, two, three other images. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's why I tend to really break my canvases up and pieces up into no longer into linear, just one time, like photograph or whatnot. You have to include time and, and change in them. And we live in a very rapidly changing time. There has to be some information. I mean, the Egyptians and the Mayans and the Incas and the, everybody, what we see see left, we, we call it art, but it was also had information in it. It had information in it. We can't just be a system where we allow corporate America to provide all the information because they'll tell you that the COVID virus only gets Democrats, especially the black ones. And I'm proud, you know. <laughs> Leroy, you mentioned uh, meditation earlier. Do you meditate on a regular yeah, basis? Yeah, I exercise and meditate hardcore on that. I'm not a mystic. I, I'm old enough. I went through all that bohemian, beatnik, zen, all that stuff. I, mm -hmm. I met people who were really major in it in the olden days. I only do that because uh, a guy told me this. He was from the islands. Uh, I was at a hotel. I was a little stressed about getting the baggage out and hurrying up to get to the, we had a, a plane to catch. He's better than any, any of the Zen monks and people I'd met. He said, man, man, you gotta relax. You have to relax because if you're tense, then your insides are tense. If your insides are tense, they don't work. I said, you know, that's right. <laughs> and to me, 
the basis of meditation is, first of all, to learn that you hold your body and parts of your body very tensely, and you have to get learned to be able to relax them internally and whatnot. And that in order to what I call meditation is really just to relax, let your mind flow and not be critical of it. You know, don't, I mean, because to, I have some friends who really work on meditation. And I don't feel like that's what meditation is. It's not supposed to be work. You know, it's not, I don't think it's supposed to be like work not. Like, so I know some Zen people, you know, they, you get beat on your back, you know, to keep you meditating and whatnot. I just think that state is a model, you know, <laughs> to do it when you become a pure person or whatnot, things like that. But I think meditation is important because we live in stressful times. Now, I, I take my temperature and my blood pressure every day, too, only because of my age is good, good idea to monitor your stuff. And I check my weight from time to time and things like that just to make sure I'm going to – I get my, my checkups – I get my checkups. I do my exercises. I think of meditation as the same thing as my exercises, just like I've learned I'm going to read one to two hours a day. I had to learn that the hard way about I'm not good in relationships because I, I love you. You're wonderful. I'm reading this book when I'm painting. You know, and I, I don't, I'm not going to be able to, I can't invest that much energy into somebody else when I want to do this. So I, I found a lot of it's not fair to people because some people really want to be that kind of. So meditation, in order to understand yourself, to keep your, your endocrine system calm, to keep your little biome, your gut functioning good or whatnot, you have to do that. There's one of the things called the inner smile. Where you're sitting, and you close, you know, and you you look down into yourself and smile. You know, Ismail Reed, the writer, he wrote. I don't know, probably not familiar with him. Yellow back radio broke down in mumbo jumbo. The African American writer. The advantage advantage that, that a lot of black people have is I've read Melville and Twain and everybody and Roth and all the rest of them, as well as a lot of incredible. Black writers, a lot of white people haven't. They've only written them. They've read, there's a whole chunk of world. That's one of my, this is why I'm writing, because they can't interpret my art. They don't have the, the references or anything. They don't really, don't really get it. And they're busy looking at other weird things like, what is a black person? So that must be a black, must mean it's black art. Or, yeah. and a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of artists of color like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm against all that kind of identity or I like a lot of ambiguity I don't know somewhere in that whole mixture and so for me meditation helps you to have some sort of middle ground you know where you're, you're centered with yourself and it's really about what you're feeling and what you're sensing and things like that which are important because otherwise as, as primates we, we respond more to each other and we shape our behavior more on, you know, than we really do on ourselves. Yeah, you know, so, so that's the thing. That, what, why meditation, I think, is important is to ground yourself. Not only ground yourself, also to recognize your, the commonality you have 
but not just with mankind, but I say with the earth, with these these stink bugs that I'm killing. <laughs> you know, not letting them in here. I'm sorry. Well, you know, when you when you just uh, mentioned commonality, and we, you know, we talked earlier about the indivisibility, right, of being an Earthling, of being an American, so on and so forth. You know, why do you think it's so? This idea of, or this notion of the common good, seems to be so challenging within our political discourse. Well, English, you know. A lot of this comes from like English law or whatnot, the Commonwealth. Remember Yosemite National Park and Fairmount Park and other, all supposed to be part of ours. Our Commonwealth is this air, which should be clean, the earth, which should be clean, and the water, which should be clean. Capitalism has destroyed that notion of Commonwealth. What we think is Commonwealth is because we support the same baseball team or <laughs> something, you know. These clowns are allowed to run their cattle on government land and, ha- and pull guns on government agents if you complain about it, you know. So the, the notion of, of commonwealth or commonality has been destroyed. And so we no longer see the eye, don't, no longer have the idea that it should be shared. It's just like with this medical issue or whatnot, people feel like, well, we're not going to get, I mean, at, at one time, you know, when COVID first started, there are lots of young African-Americans that felt that their melanin would protect them, that they wouldn't get, get sick, that it was like a white disease. Then later on, it said, oh, no, black people died. So then white people said, oh, you're going to get sick, so let's go back to work. You know? So the idea of commonality is destroyed for some reason, in spite of the fact if you consider yourself white and your family's been here 200 years and you're not balling the jack, you should not blame me or any of my black or brown brothers for that. We're not the ones who took anything from you. You are looking down instead of looking up to who really ripped you off. We should... All of us should be able to have about $1,600 more. I remember it's a week or a month right now with the $13 trillion that we've been ripped off from since Ronald Reagan. Those cats have bundled all the money we should have been getting in salaries and in income and in infrastructure. We're infrastructure. We are infrastructure. Not that road the corporate America needs to run their, their products on, you know. We're the infrastructure, so we've lost sight of that. And there's people who really feel that, uh, I mean, I heard a guy say this once, you know, some years ago, I don't want to spend my money for some woman's gynecological examination. That's funny, you do have a mother or a sister, you know, <laughs> or a wife. What are you talking about? You know, it's just kind of, so, well, I have it and I don't want him that, well, they don't deserve it. If, if it comes to religion and what we deserve, then God will send all of us to hell. All of us. God damn it. If we get what we deserve. The whole, and I'm not a religious person. The whole idea about redemption is that we can be forgiven and going. I feel like that's got screwed up by these evangelicals. You know, evangelicals were always for slavery. 
from the very beginning to get here. That's been their big issue that God said it and it's in the Bible and have and blah, 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 that they get on into. People, most people, lots of people don't know the Bible anyway. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you hear these politicians get a garble and give you some New Testament stuff and then talk to you about the baby Jesus. I said, I, I was an acolyte as a kid. I talked with many, an Episcopalian, many very well-educated men who were my priests. I had priests from all over the world, white and black, African, Asians, whatever, the Episcopalians, all educated, Boston, Brownman, black, white, whatever. And being a, I was allowed to voice my doubts my have my questions without being killed, you know, or anything like that. And I think that people have some dogmas where they've never questioned. They have not cracked a book since they left, whether it's elementary school or high school or college. Whatever information they got, they're stuck in that place and they've only maybe gotten commercial you know, television or, or media or things. So they don't really they don't really have a good information background. And when you're like that, you feel that there's not enough in this country. There's not enough room to allow natives off the reservation. There's not enough room for black people just to live wherever they want. There's not enough room to allow Asians to go to whatever school they want. You know, I mean, it goes on and on about this sense of exclusion and whatever, which then moves down to white privilege. That seems like that's all this, this all seems to be hinged on it somehow, which is why I started with, if you've been here for a couple of hundred years, then you already should be pretty well comfortable with it. You shouldn't have to be upset about it. The myth was when I, when I worked in Pittsburgh, those guys up there in the mountains used to believe that, I used to tell, hey, we're not all on welfare, and we don't have all the jobs. You know, that's not what's happening. They're sending the jobs overseas and telling you that we're not only are we on welfare, but we're getting all the jobs. That's just not so. The crime rate would not be what it was if, if there were jobs and education and occupation. No matter what anybody wants to believe, you being a little neighborhood drug dealer does not qualify you as being a great potential businessman. No, you're a lousy businessman. You kill your rivals off. You don't, you don't try to compromise and organize and say, okay, we'll control this and do it like this and make it into a safer. No, it's all mayhem. That's not good business. It's not good business. It's just like here they're trying to destroy the social security system. Why? By not allowing the immigrants in who work and paying the social security and by keeping other people from work. These clowns are using the social security and playing with it and telling you, oh, we're not gonna have it in a little while. No, they won't if you allow them to keep screwing up and not having jobs and, and, and letting them send them overseas and not creating jobs. You, you, create, you create jobs for activity. Yes. We don't really have, don't really need that much labor anymore. You do it to keep because idle hands do the devil's work. I mean, that's what it comes down to. You know, and people are going to do it. And we're in a society where they don't want you to be independent and really come up with your own business and be a small business person. 
Right. This system is about monopoly. Even though I was brought up to believe monopolies were wrong and you shouldn't have them. No, I don't, sorry, Facebook, all them things sure seem like monopolies to me. Well, Leroy Johnson, you, my friend, hit the nail on the, the head, so to speak, when you talk about people being ill-informed, misinformed, uh, maybe not being educated or well-read. Awareness is so key to, to expanding consciousness, right? And, and, and trying to give people eyes to see, you know, the truth and what's happening. And, you know, we hope that our show, Indivisible, which you are, uh, have honored us uh, to be a part of. Uh, we hope our show, Indivisible, helps to raise that consciousness for the people that come. And And I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to sit down and, and share with us your wisdom and your experience. And I want to thank Karen for bringing us together today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I had fun with them. Karen is my old homie. <laughs> <laughs> right here, right here. We hug. <laughs> good, good. I hope you'll come back and chat with us again. Looks like I might be able to do this again. You know, just work. Takes a little time. <laughs> As old heads, you know, we all it takes time. Oh, you did it. You did it. I'm very proud of you. Leroy <laughs> Johnson, thank you, my friend. You have a beautiful rest thank of your you. day. What happened now? Bless you. Love you guys. Take care. Cheers. Love you. Bye, dear. Bye. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.